Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 29, I interview Christy Chong, the founder and CEO of Modibody, a direct-to-consumer leak-proof underwear business. Hear how a side project she started while raising her four children went on to become the number eight fastest growing new business in Australia, growing 115% last year and doing nearly $18 million in annual sales. We discuss how her background in public relations and building connections between brands and consumers helped her become a successful entrepreneur, running a business that prioritizes innovation as much as social impact. How the culture and narrative shifted from being something no one wanted to talk about to becoming normalised and mainstream. If you are interested in the number one voted and original period and leak-proof underwear brand, check out modibody.com. That's M-O-D-I-B-O-D-I.com. So I'm here with Christy Chong, the founder and CEO of Modibody. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Derek. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started Modibody? What did you study? What type of companies were you working in? What, um, what roles were you doing? Yeah, so prior to Modibody, uh, I had worked um, in a variety of agencies and I suppose multinationals within the public relations and, and marketing areas. Um, so, yeah, I, I had sort of started my career in PR agencies, worked a lot in the health space actually, um, and then ended up going over to, you know, pharmaceutical company, um, hospital, and then, um, yeah, my last role I was uh, at McDonald's Australia. So, yeah, not, not, um, not, not in the textile sort of chemistry <laughs> space <laughs> at all, but what I did learn through, through, that, um, through those roles was a lot about how a um, big multinational um, global business runs, um, getting an understanding of all the departmental um, interactions and, um, and how they function. And I also really, especially from the agency world, uh, became really time efficient. So it was a really good training for me to become time efficient and understand budgeting. But my, my actual um, uh, university, I suppose, um, yeah, education, I, I actually did a Bachelor of Arts and uh, majored in um, government relations, history and performance studies. So, and then went on to study public relations after that. But, yeah, nothing to do with where I'm at now. <laughs> <laughs> and so was PR an interest and, you, and arts was just sort of a, a good foundation or did you really fall into PR in the early days? Well, look, I, I grew up in Aubrey, Wodonga. I'm a country girl. And so I think, you know, my mum, she had four kids and she wanted us to go to university. Um, I'm the youngest of four children. I don't really, I'll be really honest, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, so I just decided, I, you know, I'll go to Sydney University and do this Bachelor of Arts, which I loved. I loved all the, you know, the learning that you got to do there. And then as I was doing that degree, I started to look out well, um, outside and what, what should I actually do with my career and my life? And um, I came across public relations and I thought, oh, that really suits me. Um, uh, I love the idea of, you know, representing brands and, um, you know, building trust um, and being, you know, getting involved with other stakeholders, which a lot of that's about, you know, talking and, and um, building, building relationships between brands and people. So that seemed quite fitted to where I was at at the time. 
And how did that come up on your radar? Again, was it an interest in marketing, an interest in media, an interest in, again, big sort of brands? How did sort of PR, I guess, first come up? Did someone tell you you should do it? Did you just, again, apply and, and sort of fell into it and loved it? Or uh, Yeah, no, that's true. So a few people told me I should do it um, based, I suppose, on my personality. <laughs> um, and then I just sort of started exploring and I started calling people. So I called the PR manager at one of the hospitals PR um, uh, owner at uh, an agency and I started to get some insight as to what their role was and I thought actually that sounds really cool. My first job um, was in admin for a PR agency, an IT PR agency back in the the 90s, the late 90s when that was all sort of booming Mm. um, and there was a lot of jobs around and yeah, that I suppose doing the admin side, I got to see all the the young PR people and I was like this is what I definitely want to do and then um, I uh, was lucky to get my first sort of entry-level role. Um, someone gave me a, the opportunity, a small agency, while I started studying as well at the same time for that PR um, component. So it was that initial sort of foot in the door, even not being directly in PR, but just being very close, being the admin person, and then that's what enabled you to then sort of transition once you graduated and once they, they knew you and trusted you and liked you to, to sort of put you on as a, um, a PR person. Yeah, correct. I don't even know, to be really honest, I don't even know that I would have had to have done the um, extra education because I already had that next job as an entry-level mm. person. Um, I think it's very different these days, obviously. That, that seems to be more and more you need those qualifications. But back then, um, PR was only really becoming something that you needed to go to university for. Um, you know, now I know at UTS, you, you, it's a, you know, it's part of the media degree and you need in the high 90s. But um, it was, it was, I was lucky, I suppose, because it was right on that change over period. Um, so it was good. And then how did, how did you sort of go from there? Like, like, were you still in boutique agencies, but just handled bigger and bigger clients like McDonald's or were you, um, did you move into a larger agency that then had bigger clients? I did. So, yeah, I went from um, a few small agencies and then I moved into, my goal was, okay, this is great. I want to go work for a large agency. So I moved over to Edelman, who's a global agency, and then we got large clients. So we got, you know, we had um, brands like Sanitarium um, and, you know, large pharmaceuticals. We had a a lot of the big corporate brands as well. So that that exposure was phenomenal. Um, you know, I learned about the whole pitch process and managing media, writing press releases, um, and you know, coming up with these fantastic cre- creative campaign ideas to get news coverage and media coverage. So you know, how to do market research, and um, it was a, it's a really great learning, I think, for for, for an entrepreneur who's going to start their own business because I think uh, there's the operational side to your business and the product. But if you can't market your product um, and you can't drive interest, uh, yeah, I think that's where people do fall down. So I was sort of glad that I had that um, that experience at, at Edelman. And then I went internal, as I said, where it uh, it really showed me about different departments and, you know, what finance did versus the IT and versus the, you know, the sales department and the operation. I didn't even know what an operations department was and supply mm. chain. So to learn all of that, I think to work for a big business, um, is is was pretty crucial to that learning and what it's provided me and um, the success of Modi Body today. Yeah, and is that a more common pathway in PR to start agency side than go internal versus being internal media marketing and then going agency side? Absolutely. So as you can imagine in agency, um, you know, every 15 minutes is billable um, and it's, and it's you know, it's a really, really um, hard 
hard life. It's long hours uh, and you work for many, many um, clients. So, um, you know, we'd often be up doing pitches until 11 o'clock at night. I don't know if they'd still do that, but back then that was sort of mm. part of the parcel <laughs> of what we did. So it was really that sort of churn and burn type culture and then you sort of take all those skills that you've learned and you go in you mostly you go internal um, and then work you know in corporate comms and do a lot more of the stakeholder relations for the company building the brand um, trust and then also that internal comms and the staff engagement yeah and so, so obviously you've started out so admin in this boutique agency you've moved up to big agency then you've gone internal so you've had this really great run it sounds like in the PR space so what made you want to um, go out on your own and sort of start a business obviously big corporate career a lot of people stay in that world forever some people love it some people hate it was was there a specific moment where you became disillusioned or and you always wanted to start a business and just finally the time was right yeah for me um, I think I've always had this innate desire inside to do something to make a difference Um, and, and I probably just didn't know what it was, but, and I'd have had many little business ideas um, <laughs> that I've come up with. <laughs> so I think I knew I always wanted to do it. I, I, um, I think the timing would just have to be right. So, and, and the idea just had to come to me. So initially I thought I'm going to start this marketing PR agency. And I even went down, you know, coming up with a name, creating mm-hmm. a whole website. Um, but it, it never was, I just thought, no, 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 that's not right. I don't want to do a service-based business. That's not what I want to do. I want to, I really want to do a product. It's got to be a product. And it was, that's when it led to that idea. You know, I'd had two children, um, and, uh, yeah, was in training for a marathon and obviously the idea for Modi Body came about. And so, like you said, you sort of, the, the logical move in some ways would be the PR agency because that's what you knew and it's like, well, you, you've seen the inside, you know how it works, you, you feel you can do it better. But, but what sort of pushed you to the product business instead? Was it the long hours? Was it you just, you know, you didn't want to create something that you're already doing? Um, look, it, it wasn't the long hours because I've never worked harder in my life, um, to be really honest, uh, when, I, when, I, when you start your own business. So, you know, I've done those weeks of, you know, getting up at one, working to four, um, so, and I've done that while I was pregnant. So, um, you know, I, I don't think it's that. I think it was the finding something that I'm truly passionate about. Uh, and for me, that's that's what it was. Like it it, it had to be. Yeah, it had to be more than something that was driving a financial profit because when you go into your own business, it's, it's not about that at the very beginning. It's all about something you believe in. You believe the world needs you. You know, you're just you're going to put it into the market, and it's just this single-minded mindset that you get on, <laughs> and this one track, um, and that's what that's what took over me. I'll be really honest. Mm. I don't. I'll, I'll, I'll say, Derek, it's not. As I said, I think it was always in me, but when you find it. It just, it just the spark lit, and I was, I was, I was gone. I was like, this is it. This is me. This is where I'm going. And my husband's always said, says to me, you know, you've never worked harder and put in more hours, but you've never been happier. So, mm. um, yeah. And so you make the decision, you've got the idea, like you said, you've kind of had ideas in the past, but but you really settled on the idea, you've got the product, you're ready, it's going to make an impact, um, you're at the right point in your life. What was that first 12 months like in that journey once you committed and said, yeah, I'm going to start Modi Body? 
Well, I was actually looking after my two children living in Seattle um, as well. So the the first 12 months was sort of, I'll be really honest, it's sort of like a hobby on the side (laughs) Um, because, you know, I have my kids and and I think that was partly, I'll be really honest, what drove me to really want to do something. I love my children. I've got four of them, but I I really wanted, I needed that mental stimulation. So this Mm -hmm. became like a project for me that I was like, okay, you know, I can, I'm going to go search and find out things. I was really, really, um, I don't know, it was really, had a lot of energy for it in that first 12 months um, because, you know, I had, I, even though I had these two kids that I was looking after this in every other waking hour of my life, I was sort of focused on, on getting this product to market. And um, like you said, you, you were uh, looking after the kids. It was a really interesting project. Did you intend to make it sort of a large scalable business or was it, I'll just see how I go and it's a bit of an interesting project and you help some people along the way? Yeah, I, I, look, I'm going to be very honest. At the at the beginning, I, I think that's the that was the approach I took. Um, I absolutely wanted to make a return from it. I mean, I wouldn't ever go invest money in something and think that I'm not going to make money back. So mm. no, I always knew that you know I wanted to make money back from the business. Um, but I I thought maybe I'd have a little bit more balance in my life. Um, and um, yeah, that that soon became obvious that to really grow a business and, um, you know, make it profitable that, you know, you have to put in some extreme hours and, um, yeah, you have to become very single-minded on that approach. So, uh, yeah, I, I think the first couple of years I, I was able just to, you know, get the product into market and and test the market and the money I put in, I was able to sort of get back um, but, you know, I wasn't running at a profit and I wasn't paying myself any money. So, yeah, I don't. No, I hadn't had that thought about being big, and I and I think it's because I didn't even know if the product would work. So once I could see after a few years this product could work, um, I started to think bigger. Yeah, and obviously, really found good momentum and success, growing 115 percent last financial year, growing revenue to over 17 million dollars a year, and actually making you the number eight fastest growing new business in Australia. So how did Talk us through that journey of going from that sort of, like you said, sort of breaking even, working hard, enjoying it, um, hitting scale, getting the product right and really sort of taking off and finding that sort of fast growth success. What was that journey like and the the feeling once you actually sort of really hit that inflection point? I think this is the thing about the journey. So it's been, you know, I mean, I started in 2011, it's now 2020 and I'm still running at such a pace and, you know, I don't know that there's ever this, I just set new goals. I'll be really honest, Eric. So um, I feel sometimes I would should have celebrated more along the way. Um, but yeah, I think when you're just always setting new goals and you really, you can see the opportunity that this, this product has for the world and the brand um, now for me, it's about, you know, wow, I could actually leave this legacy brand. It's, it, it just it just has changed along the way. So at the start it was, okay, I just got to get a product, got to make this great product, you know, tick, done. Okay, now I've got to get the product. I've got to create a website. Okay, tick, done. Now I've got to get people to buy it, try it. Okay, tick, done. Now I've got to improve on the product. So if you can understand, I mean, I just kept setting these new goals and once we hit the, I remember the first, day that we um, achieved $10,000, sorry, the first month I got $10,000 in sales and I was just so happy. Um, and then when you make your first sort of million, I don't even think it's quite the same. <laughs> so, um, but, yeah, it's 
I don't know if it's me and who I am as an individual um, where I just like to keep growing and, and putting new goals on myself or whether I've just run at such a pace that I've never had that opportunity to celebrate as much as I, I should have. Um, but I don't know. I know that, you know, in whatever, maybe 10 years' time that I'll look back at this journey and go, wow, this was phenomenal. And I hope I do just really take a breath and, and um, say, go over it in my head a lot more. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And and what were some of the really hard points in that? Was it the initial getting the yeah. product? Were there phases where you sort of thought, I'm in the wrong direction, I've got to change directions, change strategy, something's not working, something didn't sort of uh, meet your expectations and you have to quickly adjust? Yeah, there. I mean, for me, there's mainly been little like hurdles. Um, and, yeah, I've had those total moments of you know meltdown that oh I can't do this why am I doing this you know but um I I'm a I think I'm that type of person I think I have those little meltdowns or those feelings only to allow me to move the business forward again um because I'm not someone who likes to be defeated and um so yeah I think I'll sort of go internal and go oh it's just not working but that gives me that momentum to change so yeah I had I had issues like you know the first batch was dyed incorrectly I mean I mean I had to teach myself all about the textile industry um I didn't know what a straight stitch was or a zigzag stitch I didn't know what a woven or a knit was so there have been just continual hurdles from the very beginning. Almost so, Derek, that I, I probably expect there to be hurdles. I expect there to be challenges. And what I've learned, I suppose, along the way is one of my strengths is problem solving. I actually quite like it. And I think you, if you're not a problem solver and you you are not sort of um, motivated by the solution and fixing and making things better, then probably entrepreneurship and creating a business is not for you um and and that's okay but or you find other people to come along on that journey who really enjoy that side because uh, uh, yeah there's not been one massive big problem there's been little problems so yeah and that's sort of what people say right you never people when you make ten thousand a month you, you sort of dream of when you make a million a month but you never get rid of the problems they just change right different just, issues yeah they do they just change the different issues um I mean, what what I've loved about becoming this bigger business is I've got amazing staff around me who are on the journey and who are motivated. And that's when I pinch myself because I'm like, wow, there's other people who want to be involved in this, other people who are committed. And it's not just me anymore. It's not me doing all the thinking. And um, I think that 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 part now is what really excites me because uh, in those early days, you're just so focused on product delivery to customers, making your customers happy. You, you know, building your team, there is a that that can be quite um, it can be quite tricky, and and you probably don't put the empathy and the um, the time into your employees, uh, and it's not that you don't want to. It's just that you don't have the energy and the time to do that. So now I'm so happy that where the business is where it's at, that I'm able to look at my staff. You know, we've got great performance plans, and they're motivated and. Um, be a little bit more about the employee engagement side and leading the business. Yeah, and what was it like doing your own PR where the business is sort of <laughs> your creation, your baby, you've, you've been agency side, you've been internal where obviously you've got a lot more focus on one company um, because, you know, you're not handling a, a multitude of clients, but when it's actually your product, 
Um, how did that change your perspective on PR? Just, I mean, having more sort of, again, personal sort of skin in the game and it being your, your own creation that you're promoting? Oh, it totally does. Like you, you take you take it very personally and even now, you know, um, I do. But um, just to, on a side, I think when you from a customer's perspective, when you get that personal feedback, it actually makes you act because you have, you know, such a personal investment in your product. So you listen, you don't just shut that door. Um, but from the PR side, yeah, I mean, at the very beginning, I found it, but I, I mean, this is PR in general, and maybe it was good that I had that, well, it was good that I've had that background in PR because I've had many rejections from media. I'm used to pitching a story or a product opportunity and the media going, ah, no, no, just not mm. going to work. No. So for me, when they kept saying, no, 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 we don't want to talk about periods and we don't want to talk about leak-proof underwear, I just went, ah, well, I'll find another way. I'll find someone who will. So because um, I was used to rejection uh, and and I did, and that's when I realised, well, I'm just going to tell my own story and I'm going to put that out there and I'm going to find these micro-influencers and um, mums and other young, you know, women with, um, you know, endometriosis who wanted to share their story and then they found our product to be useful and, and um, helpful to them. So, yeah, I think it was great to have a PR background in that sense to help with rejection. <laughs> <laughs> and was it interesting for yourself to observe that disconnect. Like you said, the mainstream media is kind of no one's interested in this, we're not interested in this story, yet your customers are loving it. You're talking about these micro-influencers, other people I imagine are helping to promote it but but not the, the le- legacy mainstream media that you're so used to and you've built your early career around. Was it that yeah. interesting disconnect where you felt like they were out of touch or it's just, you know, they don't get it because maybe the people making the decisions aren't the users or customers of the product but the customers love you and, and want to tell the story and what was that sort yeah. of disconnect like? Absolutely. There was a disconnect. Interestingly, you know, some of the journalists were actually wearing the product. They just say, oh, but we can't talk about that on mainstream TV. So, um, but as I, I did know it was about timing and also even the whole sustainability aspect. But, you know, back when we started seven years ago, people still didn't really want to talk about, you know, sustainability and the impact our environment. So, that's changed. There's been a lot more and we've been helping to drive that um, open conversation about menstru- menstruation in general, you know, with the period tax and the Me Too movement where women are saying, you know, enough's enough, that has all been growing as our brand has grown and that, you know, that real momentum behind all that sort of um, information and awareness around, you know, female empowerment as well as sustainability, which is, you know, exactly where we sit as a product. So, um, yeah, it was absolutely frustrating at times and I would beat my head. I'd go, oh, my <laughs> gosh, why don't, they, why don't they get it? This is this is great. But, you know, what's what's so wonderful is when, you know, the morning show had had me on there talking about incontinence and eventually, you know, Mamma Mia was doing it and they're all doing it and they've all done it now. They've all, there's not one, mm. I think, Someone like the project is the only one we're still to crack, but we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of the irony, right? Like everyone wants to be an innovator and be first, but it's actually very lonely when you're ahead of the market yeah. because sort of no one believes you, even though you're sort of ahead and you've got to wait for the, the media, the market, the institutions to sort of catch up to where you already are. Yeah, and it is. It's, it is like you're right. It is lonely. Um, and... But, I mean, you just have to keep backing yourself. And now I look around and I, I look at some of the competitors who've jumped on out on, on you know, on, on what we're doing as a trend. I think they see it as a trend, not a true commitment um, to, you know, being sustainable and um, having social impact. But 
it sort of it baffles me, Derek. I just think, wow, you know, seven years ago, <laughs> I mean, I was at a market stall and people wouldn't even, you know, there was some women who would absolutely engage and other women who'd be shaking their head or their boyfriends and they'd be looking the other direction, embarrassed. But we, when we did a pop-up stall last year in Westfields, totally different. I had, you know, women in their 50s bringing their mum in their 70s with incontinence and talking openly. I had the boyfriend and the girlfriend, you know, in their young 20s turning up and like talking about menstruation. So how that has shifted in seven years, that that's that's a great success and it makes me so, so happy, that part of it, that, that we're having these open conversations and people aren't, um, you know, they're not grossed out and they see it as normal. Yeah, and like I said, it's really that tipping point not many people want to be first, uh, like everyone's right. waiting for everyone else. But once, like you said, one media institution, one set of customers start coming, then everyone's like, oh, it's okay. And then everyone sort of quickly follows, but everyone wants to be a follower, but not a leader. No, and, and I am so thankful for those early adopters. Go the early adopters out there. <laughs> um, you know, I've got a few in my office. I'm always like, love you, but you love you guys because you are, you're the risk takers, you know, mm. you're the brave people in the world. And, and they're, they're who truly create change. So, yeah. Yeah, and and so many ideas, I think, as well, die in that gap between those early adopters who are on the search for cutting-edge things and the mainstream who only want something that's sort of proven once everyone else is doing it and that sort of chasm that people have written about in marketing, crossing that chasm between those early fans and and the mainstream mass audience. Very, very true. And and it is also true that you do, what you said is so true, you sit in that early adopter stage for longer than you want to and, it, and, it, and I can see how some people give up then um, because you're like, come on, come on, like what's going on? It's working, but it's just not get, not as fast as I want it to. It's, it should be further. But then something just does switch. And, um, and I, I'd say to any other entrepreneur or business owner out there, you know, just hold in there that little bit longer, look in a different avenue, talk to other people, keep exploring. Um, if you are making money, then you know that's fine. I mean, of course, it's different if you're just putting money into something and it's um, it's just losing money continually. Then you want to question it. But if you are growing, just not at the pace you want to. Just keep keep going and keep looking elsewhere. Keep looking at other avenues. Yeah, and talk to us about that um, idea. Like you said, people didn't want to talk about it. You've got a product that has a need. It's not you know no one's buying. People are buying it. People are, are really um, benefiting from the product. But it's almost a taboo subject. I'm sure some of your PR clients, the brand almost sort of sells itself. People love talking about it. It's sort of, it's very, um, you know, maybe a popular topic or something people love and versus a, a maybe some brands, some products like your, your products in the early days where people are almost shy, I guess, or afraid to talk about it. And like you said, getting that sustainability angle or, or was it just, you know, time and, and the, the narrative sort of changed over time and the culture shifted? Yeah, look, I I actually think it was more um, time and the narrative shifting with that time um, and us being part of changing the narrative but and using the tools that were available to us. So I'm grateful that we are an e-commerce business because there's no way we could have been in retail back then. You know, no one would have been able to. And I did talk to buyers, like I did talk to, you know, the big departments for buyers and mm. they've shifted, you know, they're almost saying now, well, we want your product. And back then <laughs> they're like, I can't, there's no way I'm going to sell what your, you know, that product. Um, so it, it's, it's so nice, you know, when things have shifted. But, yeah, it was, it was just 
time and finding those people who would and growing and changing. And again, I'm thankful e-commerce. I'm thankful for um, social media because, okay, you know, SEM and paid um, search, that wasn't a great channel for us because category didn't have much awareness, but thankfully for social and paid ads. And that's where we built momentum. So slowly investing more into social to grow the brand awareness, the category awareness and and build conversion, track conversion. So we have just grown our spend on social um, as we've grown. Um, So that's that's been fantastic. Now, of course, um, Google's a lot bigger, paid search is a lot bigger for us being um, because the category has more awareness. And as I said, the PR part, the influences, the natural um, word of mouth. Uh, so a lot of it is still driven by word of mouth. The the um, the customer, you know, she, when she's on board, uh, we have a very very sticky um, customer. So those who stay with us, we've tracked over you know the years back to you know twenty fifteen, and um, they you know ninety five percent retention rate. So. It's a product that they really trust and they tell all their friends and family about. So that's also helped. Yeah, and in that PR space, have you seen a shift away from, you know, trying to get a giant endorsement of a celebrity and one big celebrity, um, you know, like Nike has Roger Federer or something and, you know, one big media institution to all of these, like you said, the micro bloggers, influencers. So maybe instead of putting all your money on one big celebrity, one big so institution, you put it across, you know, a hundred or a thousand um, influencers who are probably also customers as well, right? So they um, have a lot of a different perspective than a big institution. Have you seen that sort of shift in endorsements and in sort of channels? Yeah, there absolutely has been a shift. Um, having said that, I think the all the big brands, Nike, others out there, they tend to still do that big ambassador um, because they have they have the budgets. Hmm. But I'd also say they don't understand the return on investment um, because the, those sorts of brands are already at a established level and they're fighting over a few percent market share. So they've got their marketing teams are given, uh, here you go, we're going to hit this revenue, here's 10%, go and spend it, you know, like it's all about the brand because they've got the customers. For us, we had to go out and build the customers and grow the customers. So it's not spending all that money um, and we've always tracked our return on investment on every single channel we invest in um, and so spending all that money on a brand ambassador who you know fifty thousand dollars or so for us you know for not even a big one for a six-month campaign you will not get the return um, you will get great brand endorsement but you won't get the return um, and what we is important to our brand is that we. I said from the beginning, I'm not doing it like other marketers do this. I'm not creating this brand that is, you know, polished and um, perfect because that's not what we're talking about. I wanted it to be a really authentic brand. I wanted to expose a lot of the advertising industry and and the normalization of what a woman should look like and what periods and how they should be talked about. So I think it, it became. Um, it wasn't just about you know the cost being more cost effective for us was also about I wanted it to be a grassroots brand that grew um, into a national into a global brand so um, I still feel that's right I, I don't want to pay people to wear our product I want them to mm. say I love your product um, I want to talk about you and then we form a partnership a paid partnership it, it has to be honest and truthful because I've just always I don't know that's just maybe my moral values 
Yeah, and I think that was always a funny thing that people used to get a lot of joy in like spotting someone who's a Pepsi ambassador drinking a Coke because, you know, man, they hate Pepsi. So everyone's all, all the media's always trying to catch them sort of drinking the competitor's brand, which their contract probably says you're not allowed to, but it's like, but I don't like your product, but you're paying more. So that's sort of like, so that authentic thing that otherwise, you know, it backfires and people realize, you know, they don't even like the product. They're just being paid and they want the money and, you know, they uh, don't even use it maybe or they just pose with it, right? They don't actually consume it. Yeah, and I think while consumers still follow in those, you know, big influencers on mm. Insta and other areas, I don't think they're buying everything because they know they're bought. They know that they're being paid big dollars. So, um, yeah, I, I think things are changing. I, I think, you know, I, I actually think even since COVID, things have also shifted back to be about um, less about those big celebrities because they've really exposed themselves. You know, they're just normal people. Mm. Um, and so I think there's been a shift back to the trusted professional. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that that's we've definitely seen a shift. And, you know, we also ensure that there's menstrual educators that talk, you know, that talk to our products. We've got, um, uh, we've got we're, you know, we're backed by science, so we ensure there's all that, you know, scientific um, uh, rationale behind our product or people speaking to it and also the, the medical as well to say that it's a safe product and it's a good product and can be used for, for different things as well, like endometriosis. So I think there is trust shifting elsewhere um, away from the ambassador. Yeah, and so looking sort of the category of, I guess, direct-to-consumer, you know, physical products, in the Fin Review Fast Starters, often a lot of the companies are, you know, great B2B professional services firms, management consulting, marketing agencies, recruitment, engineering, law firms. But, you know, this year the number one's Koala, a direct-to-consumer mattress company, and obviously you're mm-hmm. number eight. So we've got two in the top ten uh, product, direct-to-consumer product companies. And in, in the years I've been sort of doing the podcast, I found that very rare to have, you know, Aussie, um, you know, founded, owned uh, product companies instead of B2B service sort of firms. So um, watching the trends, like you said, you've seen the shift in PR, in influencers, in, um, you know, going through the whole process of creating a product yourself. And like you said, one that wouldn't fit traditional retail distribution. Do you see, you know, a trend or a rise in more direct-to-consumer sort of disruptor brands like yourself? And you think, is it more accessible? Is the market changing how people shop, um, you know, e-commerce in general? Uh, absolutely. There's, um, you know, a huge swing towards e-commerce and, um, you know, through e through covid um, I think most e-commerce um, direct-to-consumer brands that I know actually have um, seen uh, a major increase in sales, um, and I think even the traditional retailers who who were able to cope or you know have the um, infrastructure in place have seen an increase in their e-commerce, and and they're saying that trend is not going to go away. Um, that that now the shift has happened that the consumer really likes that, um, and especially for products like ours where, you know, you don't really, like, you know, most people know their underwear size and um, would prefer to buy a product like ours direct and have it delivered to their door than go into a, you know, a really, um, or have the experience of buying it in a supermarket or going to really outdated um, retail <laughs> department store where, where it can sit. Um, so not to say there's not a place for it, but mm. I think there has been a major shift to online. Um, and, yeah, I think there is a rise as well on the direct-to-consumer purchasing. Uh, we we obviously have a free shipping threshold, a threshold sorry, and um, I think that makes it much easier for consumers to buy online because, 
it's free shipping and we also have a, I mean, we can put our own terms and I think that's a great thing about product selling direct to consumers So we have a six-month guarantee on our product. You can do, unlike most other underwear brands, you can return them if the size is wrong and exchange them or get a full refund. So what the beauty of being D2C is you can have your own, um, your own way of um, providing a service to the customer that doesn't sit within the traditional, very, very structured retail way of running a business. And, and, and you know, even like things like who gives a crap, you know, all of us um, usually offer a, a much better social impact side to the business where, um, you know, we're giving uh, profits back to um, uh, important causes. I mean, for us, it's about ending period poverty and also the sustainability aspect, but um, other direct-to-consumer brands usually have a social impact um, side to their business so yeah and you can go more global so I think that's the other thing so I know others like Quadlock and, and other businesses their their, their footprint um, in Australia is small so you know it allows businesses to go global um, when you are D2C as a product so yeah I think you'll see more and more of them I hope it- so <laughs> mm, no, absolutely. And, and what about like the feedback cycle? I'm sure, again, in your previous experience with clients or just in general, you know, if you're doing PR, but it, you don't sort of own the customer communications, right? If it's going through a, a retailer or a, a third party, whereas in this way, you get the direct feedback from your um, end users, your consumers. Um, how has that sort of shaped your brand being able to, to sort of get that feedback a lot more directly versus maybe indirectly through social channels but not everyone's on it versus being able to email your customers, call them, sort of have those, um, that more of a direct line of communication? Oh, it, it really has shaped the brand and, and our product offering. So we will come up with innovations and then we put that innovation out to our customers to get their feedback um, and that's what decides what we're putting, you know, next launch into the market. So, and and, and we know it's going to work then because they're already saying X percent will buy this if it was offered within the next three months. So that's been phenomenal for us. Um, you, you're absolutely right. Through our customer service channel, we know, you know, when the returns process isn't working, where we're having issues with a stitch on the product or something like that. Um, and we, we're absolutely able to individualise and personalise that experience where my, my customer service team will come up to me still um, and, and I know what's happening. They'll flag it with me and say, um, Christy, you know, we need to look at this. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. Let's get onto it. Offer all those customers. Um, I know that's outside of our policy, but do it. We want to keep the customer happy. Um, so, yeah, it's much more flexible and much more customer-centric. Uh, led business and we also then know a lot more about the their buying behavior the customer mm. journey to purchase so we can better forecast as well our growth strategy um, because we we be able to track that a lot closer so yeah I think it's a really um, I think being e-com led and is a really good way to run a successful business because you've got the data yeah, and so zooming out a little bit from uh, Modi Body and the e-com sort of in general, you know, you've uh, obviously in Australia, you've worked, I'm sure, with multinationals and clients over the world, lived in the US. What trends do you see in entrepreneurship in Australia? What are a lot of Aussie entrepreneurs doing well and where are they maybe sort of step behind certain other markets or countries? Oh, it's very good. Um, <laughs> look, I, oh, geez, that's a really hard question to answer. Um, you know, I... I I would say that, what are we doing well? Like, I mean, I just, I don't know if I can quite answer that one, Derek. I think compared to other countries, it's it's very, it's it's tricky. I think we do do things well just 
not as many of it. So we, mm. you know, we have the sustainable business. You've got Zero Co. You've got, you know, he gives the crap doing the social impact side. You've, you know, you've got thank you. Um, I mean, I, I think we're equal to a lot of other countries. I, I, yeah, I, um, I think one area we probably could do better at is encouraging um, uh, more funding into mm-hmm. fintech-led businesses. Like that's a passion of mine, I suppose. Um, so I'd love to see more funding, but that's a that's actually a global um, request of mine. So you know, I'd like to see more around the menopause space and the fertility space, um, and more tech disruption around that area as well. And of course. What I suppose is close to me is sustainability. I still think um, there is so much more that we can be doing to be more sustainable. Um, And I think that there's a lot of big brands out there who are not moving fast enough. So I'd encourage people to be more entrepreneurial in the sustainable. Um, Look around, look at all the plastic and think about how to disrupt that. Mm. So. Yeah, and, and, so and wasn't that, that wasn't the best answer. Sorry no, 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 I think you've captured it well. Like I said, I think it's hard to sometimes diagnose how many things are scale issues, like per capita, you know, if you adjust for yeah. per capita, the US is, for example, you know, 15 times bigger population. So if we have one fifteenth of the sort of businesses or success or investment, you know, it's sort of, it's always talked in absolute terms, not per capita terms, and that's hard sometimes yeah. to unravel. Um you know, because you wouldn't expect us to have half or a third or even a tenth, right? It just purely population size is one metric um, for businesses, this, or like you said, investment and other areas. Yeah, and I'll be I'll be really honest. Like I, um, you know, I've I've probably not had my head in that space. I think that's some area that I will would love to champion and get more involved in. I said from that femtech side, also the sustainability side, and getting more businesses and helping to mentor. But because I've had four kids and running this very fast paced business, um, I'm not looking at that close enough right now. But um, a future project, hopefully. Yeah, and hopefully as well, just sharing the story, getting the message out, you know, indirectly, you may never meet the people who are sort of inspired by your message or who take action or learn something or or sort of do something. So you can sort of influence the change without personally sort of having that conversation with the, the person on the other side. Yeah, really good point. I hope so too. hope so. And so looking back at your own sort of life, you know, if you were sitting in a room with your sort of 18 or 20-year-old self, like you said, you kind of, your parents said, get to uni and sort of that's the main sort of thing. And you thought, okay, I'll sort of figure out the rest as I go. Um, and, and the journey you've been on now, what advice would you give that sort of 18 or 20-year-old uh, version of yourself? I'd say that um, go a little bit, be a bit kinder to yourself. <laughs> um, you know, I think... Yeah, I was pretty, I've always been quite, I was a high achiever, I still am, but, yeah, I felt like I had to get places um, back then and, you know, I was probably a little bit frustrated by not achieving things, you know, and, and back that stage, you know, you also want a partner and you want all these things and, yeah, it, it'll come. So be a little bit more patient and kinder to myself is what I would say, Um yeah, I think that would be the main thing because I do feel like, you know, that young generation even now they feel like they need to get there six months in a job, move, 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 mm. you know, it's not good enough. So be patient, stay, um, and just be kinder on yourself, yeah. Yeah, and they often say, you know, people sort of overestimate how much you can do in a year but underestimate what you can do in, you know, five or ten years because people tend to focus on the, the sort of immediate short term. Yeah, it's very, very true. I think you are, especially at that age, you are very short-term focused. Um, but, yeah, and, and I don't know that you can change 
that 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 mindset of an 18 to 19 mm. year old anyway but um but yeah look and it, you know I, I think there's always the wisdom of age and um mm. well I, I don't think I'd want to go back and change what I did because I, I really liked mm. you know those stages and there's a lot of a lot of things you trial the trial and error that you do at that age which I you know I wouldn't do now but um yeah I mean I think just be kind on yourself and be a little bit more patient about you know your journey yeah, and when you're 20 and two years is 10% of your life, you know, it feels like an eternity. If someone's, oh, in two years this will happen, it's like, you know, it feels like a long time, but in, in the future you look back yeah. and a year or two is, a, you know, a dot on the on the side of the horizon. Yeah, and it's, I think for me, because I am actually quite an impatient person, um, so it's, and for me running my own business has taught me, I'm still impatient in it, but it's taught me longevity and, um, you know, planning further which, um, yeah, I think I, as I said, I've always just gone from one thing and moved in and I'll figure it out along the way. So mm. this has taught me to plan one to two years, not that much better, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's been very good for my psyche. <laughs> mm. And so going back to, to Modi Body, where do you see the next five to ten years? Obviously mentioned a lot of great sort of themes and areas that you're sort of championing and the successes you've had. What direction, goals, vision that, does uh, the future look like? Yeah, I mean, we are absolutely um, an innovative-led business and we'll always be looking about looking to solve or empower people um, through developing innovative, sustainable solutions to all their bodily leaks. So that is the future. Um, it is huge and um, really, really exciting and uh, uh, building a global business. And, you know, I want to I want to keep championing this and um, going as big as we can. And um, at the same time, while we're building this wonderful product that obviously um, can be the answer to people who who can afford the product, we have we're having huge social impact. So, as I said, we're looking at our supply chain, how we can be more sustainable, our product offering more sustainable, everything around the product side. Um, but we're we've got a whole strategic model around giving back. So, um, you know, we're going to be in a stage where we believe we can be the leading brand in um, providing our sustainable solution to ending period poverty across the world. So um, that's also trying to do those two things at once. And I think it's really, really achievable because it's built into our strategy. So social impact's one of our key priorities, just as much as innovation. So, yeah. And, and that's so is, would that be sort of like, a, I don't know if you're familiar with like Tom's Shoes, where like they sell shoes and then for each pair of shoes they sell, they sort of donate a pair of shoes, something like that, to, to a, a sort of a different market or something different, like a share of profits or? We, we do already have a share of profit model um, in place at the moment. So for for every, actually for every purchase made, um, we we donate some stock. So we also have all our, so I was talking about that unsellable stock that comes back. None of that goes to landfill. It's all sanitised um, and donated to, to people in need. Um, so as we grow, you know, that grows, we'll never look at cost cutting that or taking away that service. Um, no, but we're, I'm talking about a slightly different model. Don't want to share it here right mm-hmm. now, but um, one that can probably have bit, bigger impact than coming straight off our profit line. So, mm. And are your customers predominantly within Australia at the moment or do you have customers overseas that you ship products to? Um, so 40% of our revenue comes from overseas and 60% from Australia. 
And has that been sort of organic or in the future? Is there a push, you know, more markets, more like pop-up stores in different countries, more sort of direct yeah. marketing to other countries? Yeah, no, we are actually expanding globally. Yeah, we, um, you know, Australia's 25 million people um, and we actually want to maintain our number one position in this market, but the the category's grown and um, we it hasn't been organic. We've actually actively gone out there and we will continually actively go out there and um, and search the markets where we, we think the category's got good awareness um, and going with our products. So, yeah, I, I'll be interested to see how the switch in that percentage grows in the near future. Um, and, 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 and I see that with other direct-to-consumer brands where I think the Australian market ends up being about 15 to 20% of their total revenue. Yeah, where they sort of test and, and build up the product and the, the brand and the ideas and the concept and then, like you said, get ready to sort of scale and export it to, to other markets once it's sort of proven within Australia. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's not as hard as people think. So, <laughs> you know, I think um, when you're e-commerce, you, you can do this. So um, maybe I just I don't underestimate it. But, um, but <laughs> I mean, there's a little, there's, there is hurdles and things you have, to, you have to, and you have to make investment, of course, mm. in dollars. But, um, but, yeah, but you can do it. I, I would say to other businesses, yeah, once you have got that proven model, um, yeah, why wouldn't you? Um, why wouldn't you go to where the market's, uh, yeah, to other markets where there could be a better return on your on your investment. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what about in terms of the product itself? Are there additional products, additional improvements, additional things that you have sort of uh, that you'd like to achieve or create? Yeah, I don't like to share too much. I no, won't share the right. <laughs> launch. Um, you know, there's there's major competition in the market now. So, um, I mean, I'm all for supporting sustainable growth over obviously disposables, but still have to be, um, you know, conscious of pushing our product because our product performs, I think it performs better and I think mm. our customers say it does. So I want them to purchase us and have a really good experience first um, so they don't go back to disposable. So, yeah, I, I mean, yes, we do have a few other products down um, that we're, we're launching this year and next year. Um, but, yeah, prefer not to share where, no, where they that's are all right. right I completely understand. <laughs> and um, do you have any final words, thoughts, comments you'd like to leave the audience with? Um, geez, I'm not really good at these wrap-up <laughs> statements. Um, you're not really. I think we've covered quite a lot of it. I mean... You know, I think uh, for me, uh, direct-to-consumer, running a business that has financial impact and social impact, that's all I'd say. Build that into your business uh, mm. and um, because you can do it and it has so much more meaning when you're doing both um, because if you're just chasing the dollar, I think it can be a little bit um, a soulless in that sense. But when you're chasing that customer impact so don't just talk to you about your to your shareholders if you're vc invested talk to the customer and the benefit that you're having to the planet and the world um because you can do it no matter what no matter what area you're in even tech even tech business excellent thanks so much christy no problem thanks derek for having me thank you for listening to the future of australia podcast if you liked the episode please subscribe and leave a review in itunes to learn more about the future of australia project check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.